KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. A gym in City Heights remains open in defiance of county and state shutdown orders. On Monday, the Union Tribune reported that Boulevard Fitness is keeping indoor operations going despite cease and desist letters and follow-up visits from the county and San Diego police. The UT is also reporting that a spokesman from the San Diego Police Department is not going to issue the business owner a citation, which means the ball is back in the county's court when it comes to the next move. A county spokesman told the UT they are aware of Boulevard Fitness's decision to remain open and, quote, further actions are pending. The state's Department of Public Health Director, Dr. Sonia Angel, departed from her job on Sunday. And on Monday, Governor Gavin Newsom dodged questions about her departure. Look, uh, we, we have a, a good team in place. We made decisions. I, I try, and I hope you respect this, and certainly been the case in other instances, uh, try not to have personnel conversations in public. Uh, I don't know that it serves a larger good. At the end of the day, uh, the buck stops with me. I'm accountable, and I recognize that as governor of the state of California. The remarks came during Newsom's first news conference since last week when county and state health officials revealed a data error. The error led to a lag in the reporting of nearly 300,000 coronavirus test results. A federal judge on Monday granted a preliminary injunction against Uber and Lyft. It's a ruling that stems from a lawsuit brought by San Diego to other cities and the state. The ruling requires the ride-hailing companies to classify their drivers as employees rather than independent contractors in accordance with a new state law. The lawsuit alleges that Uber and Lyft have misclassified their drivers, preventing them from receiving certain labor protections like the right to minimum wage, sick leave, unemployment insurance, and workers' compensation benefits. Both companies issued statements indicating they would appeal the ruling. The Mountain West Conference, the league that San Diego State University plays most of its sports, announced yesterday that the fall sports season has been postponed indefinitely because of the pandemic. That comes after an earlier announcement from the conference that it was planning to delay the start of games in multiple sports until after September 26. SDSU says it is working with student-athletes and coaches to prepare for an eventual rescheduling of the season. The number of new COVID cases reported Monday dropped to 228. And here's an impressive number reported by health officials yesterday for you. The percentage of people testing positive for COVID-19 who have been contacted by a county contact tracer in the first 48 hours has increased from 7% on July 18th to 97% on Monday. The county's target for this metric is more than 90%, so yes, we are now reaching that goal. From KPBS, I'm Kinsey Moreland, and you're listening to San Diego News Matters, a podcast powered by our reporters, producers, and editors. It's Tuesday, August 11th. Stay with me for more of the local news you need. KPBS On Demand is supported by 
Arizona Raft Adventures, a third-generation family-owned outfitter providing experiential multi-day Colorado River rafting adventures through the Grand Canyon. Hiking, exploration, education, and fun. Only a seven-hour drive from San Diego. Learn more at azraft.com. While the pandemic has forced the San Diego Unified School District to start its school year online, officials are ready to reopen campuses once they get the green light. But that could take months. KPBS education reporter Joe Hong has the latest details on the district's plan to safely return students to classrooms. Once San Diego County is off the state's monitoring list for high COVID-19 infection rates, the district will make its own assessment of whether it's safe to have students and teachers back in classrooms. Howard Terrace is a pediatrician for San Diego Unified. And that includes not only how prevalent the disease is out there, but also Where is our public health system in um, getting testing and getting contact tracing? Because that will also apply to our schools. The plan to reopen schools includes requirements for social distancing, sanitation, face coverings, and classroom ventilation. Students will be required to be six feet apart at all times unless there's a barrier between desks. And students will wear masks in class. Windows will remain open during bus rides and, if it's feasible, classes could be held outside. Forty local organizations are banding together to build local support for a Green New Deal. Politicians, environmentalists, and people concerned about social justice in the state's poorest communities agreed to work together to pass climate and people-friendly policies. San Diego County Supervisor Nathan Fletcher says the issue is no longer just about social inequities. We know that climate crisis is a global problem with local impacts, which is why we need local leadership. Right now, COVID is impacting working class communities of color, the same communities on the front lines of the climate crisis. KPBS reporter Eric Anderson has the story. The coalition features support from local politicians in a host of social justice, economic equity and environmental groups. All talked about the way COVID-19 has exposed the injustices felt in poor communities. Malika Marston works with the San Diego Climate Action Campaign. She says social injustices are all rooted in the same system of exploitation. This has been made clear watching the global pandemic devastate the health and livelihoods of those already suffering the most from systemic racism, economic inequality, and environmental injustice. Marston is urging the groups to endorse a zero-carbon goal for San Diego and a regional transportation plan that does the same. Zero-carbon means only releasing as much carbon as a city or county can absorb. Though the city council was not able to agree on how to broker a multi-billion dollar energy franchise deal last week, KPBS science and technology reporter Shalina Chatlani says San Diego Mayor Kevin Faulkner can still move forward. In a full city council meeting August 6, two motions on how to proceed with this energy deal failed. That's because council members couldn't agree on a resolution, which could have shaped how the city would begin an auction for the chance to serve the city's energy needs. While some community advocates who want the city to municipalize instead of doing business with another utility were happy, others wanted to see a deal made, one that would benefit the current franchise holder and potential bidder, San Diego Gas and Electric. But representatives from the mayor's office say the city council can only offer advice anyway. So despite the failed motions, the mayor plans to open up the bid in a matter of weeks, presenting city council with a full agreement to vote on by the fall. 
Steve Clay is owner of the La Mesa Postal Annex. His business was one of many in the La Mesa Springs shopping center that was broken into and looted in May by violence that followed peaceful protests over the death of George Floyd. We had glass everywhere throughout the store. We spent all weekend cleaning everything up. Help for these La Mesa businesses continues to pour in from the community. KPBS reporter Tanya Thorne has the story. On the night of May 30th, many businesses in the La Mesa Springs Shopping Center were broken into and looted after peaceful protests over the death of George Floyd turned violent. Steve Clay, owner of the La Mesa Postal Annex, recalls walking into a mess of shattered glass and graffiti, but also a huge outpouring from the community helping clean up. The community got involved and helped to support us. Did with the GoFundMe, just started that, which totally blew my mind. The outpouring of donations led to the creation of the La Mesa Disaster Recovery Fund. More than $260,000 came in from over 2,000 donors. Relief checks are expected to be handed out to the impacted businesses on Tuesday to help with costs from the damages. Census counters sent by the government will begin knocking on doors across the county today. They're going to homes that haven't filled out the census yet. KPBS reporter Max Rivlin-Nadler tells us how community organizations have tried to make their jobs easier by boosting San Diego's self-response rate despite the pandemic. It really impacts if a hospital gets built or a free lunch gets paid. Or This is Joanne Field's third go-round with the census after helping the county's efforts in 2000 and 2010. She's an organizer on Asian and Pacific Islander issues and is working with a variety of community groups in San Diego to boost census responses for this year's count. After each decade, she's seen how the census directly translates to vital infrastructure for San Diego's neighborhoods. Again, in National City, we have a new urgent care. Why? It's because they're serving more uh, people in National City and southeastern San Diego. She sees this year's count as vital to focusing the government's recovery efforts from the coronavirus pandemic. For example, she says federal CARES Act funding was tied directly to the previous census. So again, that's where the census comes into play. But this has been like no other census in American history. Because of the pandemic, efforts by local organizations to go door to door to get people to respond to the census had to be put on hold this spring. Mail delivery has been slowed. And a lot of residents, especially those in poor neighborhoods, have had a lot of other things on their minds. But there have been some things working for the census this year. Like seemingly everything else, the census has gone online. And it's shorter. Well, we have technology on our side this time around. This is the first time we can complete the census online, and there's only nine questions. That means efforts like Count Me 2020, San Diego and Imperial County's official census coalition, can track in real time where people are answering the census and which areas need more outreach. For neighborhoods like City Heights, which relies heavily on government support for better education, housing and health care, organizations can pinpoint where to focus their efforts. We have had to switch our strategy. And so currently right now we're dropping off literature, at least in some way, right, reach out to um, our community to make sure that they're, they're counted. Brenda Diaz is the Civic Engagement Coordinator at Mid-City Community Advocacy Network. Her organization has been spearheading census efforts in City Heights, where non-English speakers, refugees, and immigrants have been hit hard by both the adverse health impacts and the economic fallout from the pandemic. She explains that makes the census less of a priority 
while at the same time, that much more important. We understood and still understand that the census is very important, but again, it's not a priority in our community. And so by first addressing the issues that they're concerned about, kind of giving them some ease and some sort of relief, then they're able to take in, you know, our messaging, which is, well, this is why you should participate in the census. In addition to reaching people where they are, census organizers have had to get a bit creative. In the past few weeks, they've launched car caravans around neighborhoods in San Diego and Imperial counties, encouraging people to participate in the census. These efforts have been paying off. Right now, San Diego County has surpassed its final 2010 self-response rate, with 69.2% of households in the county responding. But that still means that government workers will have to visit over 382,000 homes. Because of a decision by the Census Bureau last week, they'll have one less month to do that. The count will now end September 30th. And neighborhoods like City Heights are still lagging behind. The final push to get an accurate count is where City Heights leaders like Mikhail Hussein are stepping up. He's the head of the United Taxi Workers of San Diego, whose members are from the immigrant communities that are the hardest to count. Over a hundred of their drivers are being paid this week to put a large magnet on their taxis, promoting the census in several languages. Our community, they are visual community. You know? They, they want to see things in order to do something, you know? Hussein believes that messengers from their own communities and not the government will help alleviate any concerns they might have about the information they're sharing. They see something they can relate. In other words, something they know what that means. What's, what's the benefit? With the clock ticking, and with even less time than organizers expected, San Diego has under two months left to get its census count right. And the next 10 years are riding on it. And that story from Speak City Heights reporter Max Rivlin-Nadler. Coming up, a local ICU doctor calls COVID-19 a scary disease when it comes to the physical and psychological effects of the virus on the brain. That story after a quick break. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. Scientists have been studying COVID-19 for less than a year, which is why information about it continues to change and evolve. KPBS reporter Beth Accomando has always been interested in the brain. So she asked UC San Diego Health neurointensivist Dr. Nabaz Karanjia about how COVID can affect it. So what are the ways that COVID can attack the brain and how does it affect the brain and nerves? The thing that's tragic and fascinating about COVID is it can affect the brain and nerves in so many different ways. For example, the damage it causes to blood vessels can lead to strokes and brain hemorrhages in up to 6% of hospitalized patients. Low oxygen levels caused by the lung and heart injury can damage the brain, and the inflammation itself from the infection can affect the brain and the nerves, causing confusion and delirium in the majority of patients with severe COVID. It can also directly infect the nervous system. In uh, mild cases, it can cause loss of taste or smell, or in severe cases, it can cause meningitis. 
We've also seen it cause an autoimmune reaction where the body's antibodies to the virus accidentally attack the brain and nerves. And that can cause life-threatening issues like brain swelling and Guillain-Barre syndrome. And finally, there are psychiatric symptoms that are being reported. We're seeing people with hallucinations, even psychosis, uh, even after mild COVID disease, um, which could be from brain involvement. And then there's the anxiety, depression, and PTSD due to the psychological trauma of being hospitalized with a frightening disease. Yeah, so this proves to be more scary than a horror film or than zombies themselves. So. Is this disease seeming to do something that's new and that's never been seen before? Or is it just affecting the body in ways that are causing these neurological problems? So it's not that these things have never been seen before. We've seen them to very small degrees in uh, in other viral infections. but. I think what's different about COVID is you've got no immunity in most people. And so the effects are uh, are proving to be very severe and much more common um, in the nervous system than we're used to seeing in other viruses because most people have some immunity to those viruses. One of the unique things about COVID though is that effect on the blood vessel lining that causes clots everywhere in the body. This is not something we've seen uh, from common viruses before and that's why the effects of COVID seem to be uh, more devastating and causing more widespread organ damage than we're used to seeing with other viruses. So can you talk about some of the specific neurological problems that COVID can cause, some specific examples of things you've seen or that have been documented? The neurological problems related to COVID can range from mild, like headache or loss of taste and smell, which are very common in symptomatic patients, to more concerning things like difficulty concentrating or thinking, which people are calling brain fog, uh, to confusion and delirium. And then there are the life-threatening complications that we've seen, uh, strokes from those blood clots I talked about, brain swelling, seizures, coma from infection and inflammation of the brain, uh, paralysis from autoimmune attacks on the nerves. Uh, what I'm seeing most commonly is delirium in the very sick COVID patients, and we've seen a number of strokes as well, both of which can have permanent consequences. And although they happen more frequently, the more severe the patient's COVID symptoms, it's important to note that these neuroemergencies can even happen to patients with mild respiratory symptoms. We've seen some young patients with minimally symptomatic COVID with no stroke risk factors come in with devastating large strokes. And what kind of symptoms are there in the sense of how can you tell if you might be having some of these neurological complications due to COVID? So one of the ways to remember the symptoms of stroke is the mnemonic BFAST. B for sudden balance problems, E for sudden eye or visual problems, F for facial drooping, A for arm weakness, S for speech problems, and T is time to call 911 because we have excellent treatments for stroke that can return up to 70% of patients back to a functional life, but they only work if they're started within hours of symptom onset. Uh, two million neurons are dying every minute you're having a stroke. So that's why it's so important to call 911 immediately. Uh, and that's not an exhaustive list of all the symptoms that 
could be indicative of neuro complications. Uh, if you see somebody convulsing, confused, sleepier than usual, with a bluish tinge to their face, or just generally not acting like their normal self, call 911. So are the neurological complications coming mostly from or by COVID causing strokes and, and, you know, depriving the brain of oxygen? Or does the virus actually just directly attack brain cells? So the problem with this virus is it can do both. So there are plenty of reports of meningitis and uh, encephalitis or inflammation of the brain from the virus infecting the brain. Um, we also know that even in minimally symptomatic patients, uh, when they uh, have an MRI, they can demonstrate evidence of inflammation of the brain, even if they don't have neurologic symptoms. So the exact number of patients that's, uh, that are having um, neuro invasion is unclear, but because an early symptom of COVID is commonly the loss of smell and taste, which uh, is carried by the nerve from the nose that goes directly to the brain, the olfactory nerve, we are concerned that direct invasion of the neurosystem is happening in a much larger percentage of patients than uh, we would normally expect with, with, a, with a virus like this. The stroke complications are happening in about 6%, um, depending on the study that you read, of hospitalized COVID patients. And they happen more frequently the more severe the COVID is. So uh, those um, complications, although less frequent, are, uh, are, are pretty devastating. So for you as a scientist, the complications coming from a stroke are kind of a very predictable sort of thing that you've seen before, but the way in which the virus may be affecting the brain cells directly is the part that's very new and kind of uncharted territory? I wouldn't say it's uncharted territory because we do know of other viruses that uh, that invade the brain and some even more aggressively like the herpes virus. Um, but it's because of the large number of patients that are getting COVID, we are seeing many more patients with neuro complications than we do with say the flu or with other uh, viral infections. Now, another thing about COVID is I've read that about 80% of the people who get it will recover without excessive care. And it seems like this is kind of contributing to how potentially dangerous it is. So at this point in time, we don't yet know like what long-term effects there might be for people who may have even just had a mild case, correct? That's right. What's deceptive is even if you don't end up in the hospital for uh, your respiratory symptoms, you might have other neurologic symptoms that linger for a long time. After an initially mild COVID infection, many patients have described weeks to months of persistent fatigue or the inability to think clearly, loss of smell or taste, or other vague symptoms like intermittent tingling or erratic pulse or blood pressure. And on MRI, some patients with no symptoms except for loss of smell have brain inflammation. And for some of those patients, their symptoms are still ongoing. So we don't know how long they will last or what percentage of people will get them or whether there are other long-term effects. 
That's why there are studies going on to investigate those long-term effects. Uh, one is the COVID symptom study that you can sign up for online and tracks your symptoms through an app. There's another one in San Francisco that will track patients for two years. And there are neuro-COVID clinics now opening up to help patients. We have one at UCSD that patients can contact if they're experiencing any post-COVID neurosymptoms. So what might be the dangers of these neurological complications from COVID as we kind of move forward? For the more severe neural complications of COVID, like stroke or Guillain-Barre, the risk of death or permanent disability is very real. For example, with stroke, mortality is around 20% and permanent disability um, happens to about 50% of stroke survivors. With Guillain-Barre, up to 20% of patients are left with significant disability. And even if you don't have visible damage to the brain from COVID, just being in the ICU and being delirious puts you at high risk for what's called post-intensive care syndrome or PICS, which can lead to persistent fatigue, cognitive problems similar to Alzheimer's, and psychiatric problems like PTSD for years following discharge from the ICU. We know that these symptoms occurred in about 30% of hospitalized SARS patients, and one recent French study suggests it's occurring in around 30% of COVID patients requiring ICU care as well. There are also some psychiatric complications that have come from COVID. Can you discuss some of the specifics about that? Yes. So last month, there was a a publication describing multiple patients with otherwise mild COVID who experienced visual hallucinations, auditory hallucinations, OCD-like behaviors, uh, anxiety, depression, and PTSD. Um, so this could be due to injury to the brain, or it could also be due to the very real psychological trauma of being hospitalized and isolated with a scary disease. And that was UC San Diego Health neurointensivist Dr. Navaz Karanjia talking with KPBS reporter Beth Accomando. The interview is from KPBS's excellent Midday Edition show, which you can listen to by finding and subscribing to the Midday Edition podcast wherever you listen. And that is all for today's show. Thank you for listening to this podcast. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu.